0: raging fires messed up water and always the threat of a big earthquake these are the environmental nightmares that californians are worrying about right now hot back summer more like the new normal for the golden state and we haven't even hit labor day i'm Gustavo Ariano. you're listening to the times daily news from the la times today's thursday august 19 2021. the taliban violently puts down protests against its takeover in afghanistan three people are reported dead. Top US health officials say COVID-19 vaccine booster shots will become available starting in September. And German scientists have observed brain-style cells that grew eye-like things in a lab setting. Um, Can someone put Ripley from Aliens on speed dial? The Dixie Fire is now the largest single wildfire in California history, more than 600,000 acres, that's been burning now in Northern California for over a month and has destroyed more than 500 homes in areas that never imagined wildfires to be a monthly year-round risk. The Dixie Inferno continues at the same time that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has released their bleakest report yet. Here's a worst quote. It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere ocean, and land. Ay vey. It's times like these that we fall back on our monthly panel of peril, my colleagues of catastrophe, these experts of emergencies, to try to give us solace in these very, very dark and hot times. Yup, it's time for our Masters of Disaster. Musica Maestro. As usual, we have our trio of terror and introducing, first and foremost, our earthquake wizard, who also dabbles in COVID-19 reporting. Ron, Lynn, what's going on? Hey. Rosanna Shah is our Cassandra of the coast, including earthquake-caused landslides and tsunamis. that I'm sure eventually earthquake-caused wildfires that cause climate uh, the coast to go up. Hi, Rosanna. Hey, Gustavo. And Alex Wigglesworth covers wildfires, which means she is now working all the time, year-round, even more so than Ron with COVID. Hey, Alex.
1: Hi, how you doing?
0: Oh, scared as usual. So looking for comfort from all of you. So we'll start with you, Alex. Do we know how this Dixie fire started?
1: Not for sure. An investigation is in its early stages.
2: Fire just decided to blow up with the red flag warning event that we went into. Uh, We're in another red flag warning event starting today.
0: That was Edwin Zuniga, and he's the public information officer for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection.
1: That said, the fire started near where a tree had fallen into a power line maintained by Pacific Gas and Electric Company, the utility that supplies power to parts of northern and central California. Then nine days later, another tree appears to have fallen into another PG&E power line about 30 miles away, and a separate fire started that eventually merged with the Dixie Fire. Prosecutors in Butte and Plumas counties are investigating PG&E for potential criminal charges, They're looking at whether PG&E did everything it was supposed to do to mitigate the risk of a wildfire, things like trimming the vegetation and maintaining the equipment, and then also whether PG&E responded appropriately once it became aware of disturbances on the power lines. PG&E has already said that in the case of the first fire, it took about 10 hours for a worker to reach the site and call it in. These prosecutors say that PG&E should have known this power line was in a really high risk fire area. The canyon where the first fire started is the same canyon where the campfire started in 2018. That destroyed the town of Paradise and killed 86 people. PG&E pleaded guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter after its equipment was found to have started that fire. And in fact, PG&E had flagged the power line that might have started the Dixie Fire to be buried underground as part of a safety campaign announced as a result of the campfire. The work on the project hadn't started yet. Still, Piagini told me that it was up to date on tree trimming and pole inspections in the area, and it is cooperating with the investigation.
0: Wow, for the days where we had to worry about when a tree fell in a forest, if it made a sound.
2: (laughs) 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 That was terrible.
0: I like it. I have to move on with these jokes to keep levity. Studies have shown that humans ignite the majority of wildfires in the U.S. And as you pointed out, Alex, it could mean mismanaged power lines. A backfiring muffler can cause a fire, a spark from a shovel and, well... Even gender-reveal celebrations because people are dumb. But it's how we're interacting with a changing climate that's making an already bad situation worse.
1: Yeah, regardless of how fires are starting, these conditions are helping them really take off. It's been hot. The vegetation is historically dry. In some areas, there's a buildup of this dry vegetation for a bunch of reasons, from the elimination of indigenous burning practices to years of aggressive fire suppression.
0: Here's Dixie Fire Public Information Officer Ryan Bain talking to the AP of the Associated Press earlier this month about the drought's impact on the fire.
3: There's a lot of work to do as far as mop-ups so we're playing catch up with this fire. Um, It's very difficult to get it out in front of it because of the intensity of the fire and the the dryness of, of the fuels out there. So California is going through a drought this year.
1: And of course, there are also more people living near these wilderness areas than there were 20 years ago. So when fires do burn out of control, there's a bigger chance they could sweep through a town. We actually saw a lot of these conditions align when the Dixie Fire destroyed the town of Greenville. The fire had actually been burning for about three weeks at that point. Then bad weather conditions set in. It got windier and even drier. The fire hit pockets of overgrown, unburned fuel, these patches of timber that were clogged with undergrowth. The undergrowth helps the fire get up into the crowns of the trees, which actually allows the flames to run across the treetops. That threw embers over the containment line. Those sparks landed in dry vegetation and started spot fires, which caused the fire to grow over the line and race towards the town. And by then, the fire was also burning so intensely through all that fuel that it was creating its own weather patterns that were helping it to grow larger and making it more dangerous to fight. And this fire behavior was so erratic that it was really a scramble to make sure that everyone even got out of Greenville safely.
0: And it's one thing when it's like, Say in Southern California, infamously, Mike Davis, the author, wrote an essay about 25 years ago called The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, and he was criticizing suburbia. But we're talking about small cities up in the Sierras, you know, where it's all green forests, mountains. These towns are not supposed to be at risk of getting burned every year, maybe once in a generation, but not every year.
1: Sure. We're definitely seeing fire enter populated areas more frequently and in some areas where I mean, there are some areas where experts thought fire would really never enter that are now at risk for burning.
0: Ron, you're an earthquake guy, but you've also covered wildfires in your career like a good master of disaster. And while every Californian grows up with earthquakes waiting to fall on us like, well, an earthquake, the anxiety around fires is just right up there with them. I mean, I've read accounts of the Spaniards who came here in the 1770s and they would write about these humongous fires going all along the coast to the point where it's all smoky.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, fires have always been a part of the California landscape, whether naturally or even indigenous tribes practicing intentional burns for thousands of years. But for modern-day California, apocalyptic fires were not an annual thing. Like, growing up in the Bay Area, I have this indelible memory when I was a kid of the Oakland Hills burning in 1991. And that was, at the time, the second deadliest fire in California history. Unfortunately, 25 people died, many trying to escape. But now it's kind of like an annual occurrence. You know, in 2017, there was the Tubbs Fire in Napa and Sonoma counties that resulted in 22 deaths. Alex just talked about the campfire that flattened much of the town of Paradise. And then just last year, 15 people died in the North Complex fire north of Sacramento. And the scary thing is, is, that it used to be that the deadly fires usually happened in October and November when we saw the Santa Ana winds or the Diablo winds up in the Bay Area. But not anymore. Some of the deadliest fires have started as early as August this month, as last year's North Complex fire did. And it's just nuts. I mean, growing up in the Bay Area, we never thought of Santa Cruz counties with its redwoods ever catching fire. But that's exactly what happened last year.
0: Yeah, it's like the fire of the century every month in California, whether northern, southern, everywhere.
3: Yeah. It becomes to the point where we're always like, you know, I'm on tinter hooks. Last fall was the first season where I actually had to buy air filters and put them all around my place because the stench of the smoke was just so bad. Like we couldn't breathe. It used to be that I would tell people moving into the area, you know what, don't worry about the smoke this year. It's like, it's a one in every 10 year thing. I can't say that anymore because it's now the case where we do have to prepare for lots of smoke every late summer and every
0: early fall. Bad air quality, that's gonna be another topic and probably next month, the way California is going. Rosanna, you've also covered wildfires because again, when you're a master of disaster, you have to be limber with your doom. And you recently looked up your old reporting from 2014. What's that out to you?
2: Yeah. And also what Ron just said about the air filters. I mean, we covered earthquakes before, and that's kind of part of my spiel to any friend that moves to Los Angeles. I tell them about the earthquake kit, and now I'm all about telling them to buy this and this air filter because you need this before it all sells out. But going to 2014 and when I was covering wildfires, I mean, do you remember the King Fire? I was rereading stories I'd written about this wildfire near Sacramento and Tahoe. And I mean, that fire was massive. At one point, it produced a gigantic smoke plume the length of Colorado, and the embers were flying across canyons and rivers and outracing the 4,000 firefighters trying to control it. And there were so many superlatives about that fire, too, in that year. And I was struck by how many people I quoted saying that these fire behaviors in 2014 were unprecedented. And even then, as it is now, each interview seemed to be with a fire chief who was shocked by something they had not seen before or had not seen in ages. And I am ashamed to acknowledge just how many people have probably become desensitized towards like unprecedented. And if you weren't somewhat impacted by one of these fires, they all kind of start blurring together. And, you know, how many people today even remember the details of the King fire? Who can tell you where that fire actually started?
0: I couldn't tell you the difference between the King Fire and the Camp Fire other than it was destructive. And it's just like earthquakes. You cannot really tell them because they just blur into one big, massive thing that then makes all of us blasé. And that's such a Californian thing to do, sadly.
2: Yeah. As I was reading these articles from 2014, Governor Brown at the time even declared a state of emergency for the King Fire. I mean, how many state of emergencies have we had since then?
0: Oh, one big, huge one ever since coronavirus. We'll have more after this break. We've been talking about the Dixie Fire here in California, but that's just one fire of many raging all around the world right now. You have wildfires in the East Coast, and then there are these images from wildfires in Greece, and Algeria, all red and just disturbing. Before the break, we were talking about words, cliches, really, like unprecedented. Should we retire that word when it comes to natural disasters? For all the masters, Alex first.
1: I would say no. Just because something unprecedented keeps happening every year doesn't mean you should stop pointing out that it is literally without precedent. I hear the criticisms. I do agree that it can be numbing. So maybe we should be a little more judicious in its use, but I don't think we should retire it completely. I think the fact that fire conditions have been unprecedented every year for the past several years actually says something about where we are as a society and where we're heading to.
0: Ron, unprecedented, retire, yes or no? No,
3: and it depends, obviously. But it's important that we describe things as being unprecedented when they are. Like, it's true that California is getting as hot as ever. I remember doing the stories a couple years ago saying, it's the hottest July ever, and it was a big deal. And now it's unfortunately not as surprising, but it really should be as shocking as it was back then. And our fires are getting bigger than ever. I mean, of California's top 10 largest wildfires on record, all of them have been since 2003. Nine of them have been since 2012. And even crazier, eight of them have been in just the last five years. That is important to convey that these are unprecedented times. However, one thing that we should not be surprised by is how fast fires can spread. If they tell you to get out, get out. And every Californian should know two things. One, how Santa Ana and Diablo winds work. They come from the northeast to the southwest. So, Keep that in mind for whenever you're trying to figure out where the fire is going when there are Santa Ana winds. And two, have your antenna up for when they issue a red flag warning. A red flag warning means that that fire conditions are imminent. And everyone in the Midwest would know what a tornado warning is. Everyone in California should know that a red flag warning means, hey, pay attention, it's fire weather time.
0: Rosanna, you're like the Cecil, the turtle of the masters of disasters. That was the tortoise, actually, in the Bugs Bunny cartoon that ends up beating Bugs Bunny because for you, it's erosion of the coast, slow, 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 slow. And ultimately, it's going to destroy us all. So what's your perspective on unprecedented?
2: I'll build off of what Alex and Ron just said. I think the point I want to make here is that these natural disasters are largely due to unnatural causes. It's our human built environment, for example, that's getting in the way of the ocean, It's the power lines and the very human mistakes that are sparking these massive fires. And yeah, climate change, all our emissions and fossil fuel pollution are these natural disasters. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but with the new IPCC report that came out this month, you know, that huge climate change report by the United Nations and like 230 scientists, we really have to do something about what our world is going to look like 30 years from now.
0: On that note, here's Co Barrett, the vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
2: It is indisputable that human activities are causing climate change. Human influence is making extreme climate events, including heat waves, heavy rainfall and droughts, more frequent and severe. What's new in this report is that we can now attribute many more changes at the global and regional level to human influence. The report made it even more clear with scientific certainty from so many scientists across the globe that we cannot afford to continue business as usual. We need to cut our emissions massively so that the world after 2050 does not become the worst-case scenario. And beyond the doom and gloom, I really want to hone in on one key takeaway from a lot of what we discussed today and from the report as well. The scientists made it clear that it's not too late to do something. It's not too late to change course, but these changes really need to happen Now, we've known about this for years, for decades, and we really do have to take action now. So even though we have all these immediate disasters to take care of, like wildfires, we really need to make sure we're also planning ahead to prevent these longer-term disasters.
0: But it's the hardest thing to make people care about what's going to happen to them after they're long gone. Who cares about their children? They don't even care about their children. So instead of making people think about the future, which they won't think about, how about right now? It's only August. You have these big wildfires. What can we do right now to fight both? Maybe we're not going to be running up there like with buckets, but what can we do to be like smoking the bear and prevent forest fires?
1: Well, I think Rosanna had a great point that unprecedented doesn't mean something is inevitable. It doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done about it. In the case of a wildfire, you can say maybe, you know, don't take actions that spark a wildfire. You could also say, be ready to evacuate, follow warnings, listen to authorities, get out when they tell you to get out.
3: I think one of the things that you can do is if you have a home in California, You should do the thing where you go around your house and see if there's any flammable dead trees or branches or anything and clear that out. And, like, if you look at your roof and you look at the eaves, one of the things that can happen a lot are, you know, little embers that get up into the eaves and cause fires. And that can happen in major urban areas. I mean, we saw how a whole suburban tract neighborhood in Santa Rosa went up in flames, and I would have never expected that. So those are some things that you can do. And then in terms of climate, I feel like there are things that you can do. I mean, if you're thinking about buying a car, think about buying an electric car, maybe a plug-in hybrid. There are certain things that we can all do to try to reduce our carbon footprint.
0: Rosanna, can't you just ask Stitch to ride a big wave right into those fires and just harm the fires and that's it alone?
2: I'm just going to respond with another quote from the IPCC report that I have been thinking about since it came out this month, and these are scientists talking, 234 scientists across globe, and the quote is, this is a code red for humanity. I just want you all to sit with that for a second.
0: Oy vey. We'll be back after this break. As is our tradition, after all the doom and gloom, and there's a lot of it, and it seems every month we have more and more of it, but we can still find joy. And all of our masters of disasters always have the most brilliant of joys. So we'll have to start with the joy of Ron. Ron, what's your joy? So I followed a little bit of
3: Alex's advice from a previous podcast that we taped. And what brings me joy is our national and state park system. I did that road trip up to Seattle, up and back, And man, I mean, I am very grateful for the fact that we have a lot of redwood forests that have still been preserved. I mean, just seeing the old growth and the enormous trees just brings me a sense of calm. I even also saw there's this something called the Lava Beds National Monument. And you can actually go into these tubes underground that were formed by lava, you know, so long ago and just check out, you know, nature. I mean, it is destructive nature, but it's calm <laughs> right then and there. So, so that brought me a lot of joy in the last couple of weeks.
0: Joy in lava. Only Ron could find joy in, <laughs> joy in past lava, no less. Rosanna, please bring us more joy.
2: Well, since you loved my joke last month, here is another silly ocean <laughs> joke to bring you more joy. Gustavo, what did the ocean say to the beach?
0: What did the ocean say to the beach? Surf's up?
2: Nothing. It just waved.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was a sweet one. It was good. I am not going to tell any more jokes because I'm terrible at my jokes, of course. (laughs) Maybe I'll do a knock-knock one next time. But Alex, finally, what brings you joy?
1: So I actually had the pleasure of being caught in a rainstorm twice this summer. I never used to be one of those people who liked rain until I moved to California. Like my dog Steve is four and he's only seen rain a handful of times in his entire life. The first time was when I visited Philly, and that was a nice surprise. The second time was actually out in the desert, not far from the Arizona border, during a camping trip that I clearly did not plan well, at all. It was so freaking perilous. Like I started getting these emergency notifications. The first said, life-threatening thunderstorms. Then it was flash flooding, turn around, don't drown. And it said, dust storm, pull aside, stay alive, like they all rhymed. But when the storm actually rolled in, it was beautiful. There was this insane snake lightning. The skies opened up. Everything smelled sweet, like saffron. Mm. I ended up sleeping in a Motel 6 instead of outside, but it was worth it to see my first desert rain.
0: Did the Motel 6 smell like saffron?
1: Unfortunately, it definitely did not. <laughs> they
0: do allow dogs, though. Ah, oh, well, always dogs. Holiday Inn Expresses smell like pancakes, and that's a good smell to have. And that's it for our Masters of Disasters, our monthly series with our LA Times environmental reporters. Thank you, Ron Lynn, covers earthquakes. Alex Wigglesworth on the wildfires beat. And Rosanna Shaw, always about the slowly eroding coast. Thank you, Masters. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, a conversation with Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Please, please, please don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Marina Peña, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Eben. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this mother. Gracias.